0: Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to John 15 if you would. This talk has been percolating for a while. I came already prepared to give this two weeks ago, and then because of Pete being here, we gave him the honor. And uh, we're blessed by that. And then the way things turned out, Arvin was here last Sunday so I can't decide if this thing got better, or if it's going to feel like leftovers, but uh, we're going to give it a shot here this morning. I'm going to title this talk, Directives on Becoming a Bountiful Branch. I'm just curious, how many of you at your house have grapes? All right, half of us maybe. How many of you consider yourselves vine dressers? All right. It's interesting. I don't either. My wife maybe is a bit more of a vine dresser than I am. Um, she watches videos on how to prune them and things like that. We we attempt every year to get a few grapes. However, if you'd have been a man in Palestine, um, you would probably be quite a bit more familiar with grapes and vineyards and vine dressing than we are, as a collective group, here today. I'm going to read the first eight verses here, and then we'll uh, maybe talk a bit more about that. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And Men gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So again, uh, let's just back up a minute and think about Palestine and vineyards for a little bit. If you remember with me when Noah got off the boat that day, it says a few verses later that he became a vine dresser. He became a husbandman. So the the idea of uh, vineyards has been around for a long, long time. Noah is the first one we know of, and um, help me out. Remember the spies that came back from uh, spying out the land of Palestine before they moved in to take the land? Well, they decided not to, but what did they bring back from from Palestine? We all remember the grapes, don't we? Do you remember what else they brought back? Story. Oh, they brought back stories for sure. Yeah, pomegranates. pomegranates, good. There was one other thing. It was figs, figs and pomegranates and grapes. But we all remember the grapes, and we struggle with the figs and the pomegranates because in our storybooks we always see the two guys with the stick between them, and they're kind of laying down in this huge bunch of grapes. It's, there's kind of a bow in the stick, if you remember. It's 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 made so we remember the grapes. Okay. So the reason this is, is the climate in Palestine was very conducive to growing grapes. Uh, it just was. And so this was, this was something that people knew about. They knew about vineyards. Throughout the Old Testament, if you will remember, um, vineyards are often referred to as symbols of peace, contentment, safety, plenty. I'm going to read you a couple verses that just bring that out. In 1 Kings, it's talking about the uh, reign of Solomon. And here's here's how that writer condenses Solomon's reign. He says, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. All right. So it's interesting how that condenses that. And one of the things it mentions is vines and fig trees. Um In Psalm 128, whenever the psalmist there is giving the analogy of a beautiful picture of a home, he talks about a wife being a fruitful vine by the side of the house and children like auto plants around the table. The prophet Micah in Micah 4, he uh, waxes prophetic and he gives um, a prophecy here that very much would sound like it's referring to the prophecy of the coming church age. And he says this, he says, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Again, this this uh, reference to a vine. I'd like to give you just a little bit of uh, practical history on vineyards in the uh, in Bible times. Vineyards required a lot of care, a lot of constant and continued care, and the hillsides in the area were mentioned as desirable locations for these vineyards. They were less suitable for other forms of agriculture, so often the the hills would have vineyards on them. Often vineyards would be surrounded by hedges or walls, and uh, this speaks about the value of the crop um, and the vulnerability of it to thieves and wild animals and whatever, breaking in and and, uh, messing with the vineyard. And uh, if you were a real um, adamant vine dresser, you'd probably put up a tower or two in your vineyard too, uh, watchtowers to, to guard this, this vineyard. And uh, the real vine dressers and, and uh, husbandmen of the day would uh, put a wine press uh, in his vineyard as well to take care of the, of the crop that he was going to harvest. And during the harvest season, the owner himself may build a hut in the vineyard and live there and just be there, just, just be around while this was taking place. Of course, um, there was work. Branches had to be pruned. The pruned branches had to be gathered and burned. It's interesting that vines before Roman times did, were not grown on trellises. They were allowed to run along the, 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 uh, the ground. And eventually, maybe they'd find a tree to climb up, and they'd grow up through the tree, kind of in tandem. And some writers uh, say that perhaps this is why the reference to sitting under your vine. Uh, your vine may have run up a tree, and, and uh, you, would, you would sit in the shade of this tree and vine. So the harvest of the grapes would take someplace and uh, take place sometime in August or September. And while we don't exactly know what the average vineyard would have produced in, uh, in those days, uh, we do know that the harvest was quite important. And uh, if you remember with me, in Deuteronomy, if a man planted a vineyard and he had not eaten yet of that fruit, he was not required to fight in a war until that had happened, which is uh, again speaks of the value and the importance that was placed on vineyards. Once these grapes were harvested, some were eaten fresh. Others were dried into raisins, but much of it was pressed into wine, grape juice. A couple of laws in Old Testament times concerning vineyards, they could not be stripped completely of their grapes. The owners had to allow some gleanings for the poor and sojourners of the land, the fathers and the widowers the fatherless, and the widows. Other plants were not to be sown with grapes. Um, Vineyards were mostly cultivated by owners, but they could be hired out to laborers or rented out to others, actually. So there's a few uh, interesting facts about vineyards that um, maybe help us to understand some of the words and some of the things that Jesus talked about here when he was addressing um, his... Disciples here in making this analogy. Another thing that was interesting to me is the symbolism of Israel, Old Testament Israel, as a vine. It was certainly not a new analogy to the disciples. And if you care to, turn to Isaiah 5. This is probably one of the one of the best descriptions of this analogy that we have in the Old Testament. And I'm just going to read... Um, Read what Isaiah has to say here in Isaiah 5. Now will I sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between betwixt me and my vineyard. What could I have done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Whereof, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And break down the walls thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned, nor digged. And there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, and behold, oppression for righteousness, and behold a cry. What a picture. What a sad picture is painted here of this Old Testament vineyard that Christ had, uh, or that God had um, took so much time in, invested so much into, and got nothing. Virtually nothing. Jeremiah also speaks of the disappointment of this vine. He says, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou? turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me. And the prophet Hosea also speaks of it. Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself, or according to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars according to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. So here we have it. We have this analogy of Israel being this vine, and this vine was one worthless vine. The thing either did not bring forth fruit, or it brought forth the wrong fruit, or if the fruit was brought forth, it was used upon the branches themselves. So the disciples understood this analogy of a vine. I want to just point out one more thing before we go into our text here and look at that a little closer. I was reading through the latter chapters of Genesis recently, and this stood out to me. In Genesis 49, whenever... Jacob is pronouncing the blessings on his sons. This is what he had to say about Judah. He said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now here's what I, wanna, I want to uh, focus on. Of course, we know he's, he's referring to the coming of Christ here. He says, binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. That's, that struck me because the word picture you're getting here is we have this, this product, this vineyard, and, and the product of the vineyard, the, the wine and so on, this valuable asset is talked of as being something that's in very much abundance and something that people are enjoying so much. They're tying their colts and their horses to the vine and they're literally washing their clothes in the wine. OK, there's so much of this abundant product. I think it fits very well in the context of Christ. Um, being this vine, being this, this product that there's so much potential and so much of it. It's also interesting in Isaiah 55, again, very, very familiar verse, but it says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, comes to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Again, in the context of a prophecy of Christ's coming coming kingdom, he speaks of expensive wine as something that is easily acquired and available to all. Now, just a side note, this maybe doesn't matter, Warren, but uh, milk is also mentioned in those two things, so maybe maybe there's something to be said for that too. All right, so we're maybe not vine dressers, but we know something about milk. All right, so much for that. Let's look a little bit now directly at our... Um, passage here. And I'd like to look at the synergism between the vine and the branches and the husbandman. Let's focus, first of all, on Christ as the vine uh, to which every believer must be attached. So a few things about a vine. The vine itself, that trunk, is, a, is veiled by the branches. When you look at a vineyard, or a, if you come look at our grapes in August or whatever, you would not see that trunk. You'll see leaves, you'll see branches, you'll see maybe fruit if you dig deep enough, but you really are going to have to dig to see the, uh, to see the, the that vine, that, that trunk. It's not readily viewed. The vine is that source that... Um, connecting point between nutrients and water and the fruit again the analogy to Christ is becoming very obvious and Jesus says without the vine you can do nothing he says nothing Um, he doesn't say you will do very little you won't accomplish much he says you will do nothing Christ also stresses that he is the true vine um, I think he's stressing this because as we looked at just a few minutes ago, they already the, the disciples probably already saw themselves as something attached to a vine. That vine being the, the uh, country or the, um, the, 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 yeah I guess the country of Israel, the um, heritage they had. But he said, "I want to talk to you now about the true vine." He said, "That's a vine, but I want to talk to you about the true one now." John, in his book, if you remember with me, is often, ref- often referring to something that's true. He talks about true light. He talks about true bread, true worshipers. Now he's talking about a true vine. Something that's authentic and real. Something that you don't have to question the authenticity of. We like things that are authentic. At least, I, I think we do. I do. Um, but generally speaking, authentic things... Um, cost just a little bit more, and uh, they don't come for nothing. Um, Whenever we got married, uh, we decided we needed a dining room table, like most people do, and, um, of course, it seemed like we were buying an awful lot of stuff at that time, so we went to the German Baptist man that was making dining room tables, and he said, well, you can get one that's made out of real wood, or you can get one that's made out of what ended up being glued-together sawdust. But we'll put a veneer on that, and it'll look pretty nice. And there's quite a bit of difference in the money. So guess what I went with? I figured, let's save some money, and we'll go with the glued-together sawdust. Well, that worked pretty well for long, many years. But recently, our dining room table is starting to have a few problems that if we would have had an authentic table, we wouldn't be dealing with. And screws are coming loose, and, and, and the man of the household is... Uh, desperately under the dining room table making repairs as the company's coming down the road sometimes. And uh, it seems like I find these things out at the last minute. But anyway, um, I doubt I'll be passing that on to my to my um, grandchildren. I just don't think my grandchildren would be interested in that thing. Whereas my brother recently got my grandmother's dining room table, and I think he has a pretty good chance of handing that off to his grandchildren. It's authentic, my friends. It's made of wood. Things are going to be around for a while. All right? The, Jesus is saying here, I am authentic. If you want to get from here to there and be able to pass it on to your grandchildren, this is where it's at. Just by implication, Jesus is implying that if we want to find other vines to tap into, they're there. People need something to identify with and to tap into, and you know along with me that people will find that in just about anything and everything. About every four years, we're reminded how much political parties mean to people. People identify with political parties. If you will remember, maybe some of you know this, but um, one of the upper echelons of uh of Nixon's administration, said that he would rather drive over his grandmother, or if he had to, he would drive over his grandmother to get Nixon elected. He was a Nixon man. He also went to jail for Nixon. He was, uh, he was part of the, uh, of the um, Watergate scandal. Just, a, just an illustration of how tapped into that particular vine he was. Paul had to admonish the folks at Corinth that they were tapped into the wrong vine too. He said, you guys are saying that one of you are of Paul and the other ones of you are of Apollos. He said, you have it all wrong. He said, we are both of Christ. What you're trying to do is tap into a branch. You need to tap into the vine. Folks, take a lesson. You can't be of a political party or even of a religious political party. It doesn't work. Do not put your stock or try to tap your lifeblood out of a person or an organization for your identity. Jesus says in John 10, very familiar verse, he says, I am come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. People want life. Do you want the abundant life? All right, let's... Change gears here a little bit now, and let's focus a little on the branches. The branches are where the real action is taking place. This is what you see. This is the visible part of the vine. So a few directives to the branch, number one, the branch needs to abide or continue in the vine. Verse four points that out very clearly, that we need to abide or continue. That word means continue in the vine. This word abide comes out over and over and over again in this particular set of verses. If we back up to uh, um, verse 23 in chapter 14, it says, if you love me, you will keep my words. And then in 24, he says, which are really God's. And it says, we, or Jesus and and the Father as one, will come and we will make our abode with that person. So in other words, here he's talking about uh, he's using that word abide in a different form. He's talking about him abiding in us. Okay. Now in chapter 15, he's talking about us abiding in him. All right. So now let's look at this. In verse 5, he talks about it again. He says, he that abideth in me and I in him. He's bringing this out again. In verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Again, that synergism, uh, it goes both ways. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. If there's one thing that Christ is being clear is that um, a way that the world would distinguish between his followers and everybody else would be a loyalty to the word that had been given and that he would continue to give to them. So the whole thing of abiding means to stay, stay put, stay the course, just stay there. If somebody would ask you where your abode is, you would say, well, it's wherever it is. Uh, For some of us, it's in Dodge Center or Claremont or wherever you all live. Um, In other words, that's where you're hanging out. That's where I'm most likely to find you, at least most of us at certain hours of the day. That's our abode. We stay there. We're not going anywhere. Um, That's where we live. Jesus is calling for us to take up residency in the vine. That's basically what he's saying. There are several reasons that a branch could choose not to abide in the vine. And here's where some of the analogy breaks down because a, a branch out here on a, on a grape harbor somewhere doesn't just decide one day, oh, I'm just going to leave. I mean, it isn't quite that easy. But we, we have that choice. As branches, we can make that choice. So what are some of the things that could make a branch choose not to abide in the vine or, or, or cause us not to want to continue to abide in Jesus? Well, a couple things I, I thought of. We are people that are affected by our surroundings and the people around us. We are people that like to be kind of like everyone else. So if we see everybody else is doing a thing or jumping ship, there's a temptation for us to do that too. Second Timothy Paul warns Timothy, says, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So look out, Timothy, make sure you're not deceived because there is going to be a real temptation for you to do that because you're going to look around and everybody else is being deceived and you're going to say, well, maybe they're right. You know, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll be deceived, too, or maybe you'll cave into that deception. Probably most of us think that we we're made of more stellar stuff than that, and I hope we are. But let's not kid ourselves. We are people that are prone to look around at other people and begin to measure and mark by what everybody else is doing. I'll give you an illustration I recently heard that brings this out so well. So there was a, a, a little study done uh, by, by, I think it was at a college somewhere, I can't remember the details, but, but in essence, what they were trying to prove is that we as people will eventually acquiesce and do what everybody else does, all right? So they had ten people. One didn't know what was going on in the study. Nine did, all right? So we have one guinea pig. The other nine knows what's happening. They're plants. So each each person was giving, given a, an index card with two lines on it. So they, I guess we don't... Here. So that the index card had, had two lines, had a long line, and it had a, a line that was a little shorter. So the exercise was very easy. It was, uh, vote which line is longest. Now, here's the catch. The, ten, the nine plants were told before, vote for this one. Vote for the short one. So, first time around, everybody votes. Ten people for nine out of the ten come back saying the short line is long. And one person, the one that didn't know what was going on, said the long lines long. Alright. Alright, let's do it again. We're gonna vote again. Ten cards passed out. Ten lines again, or twenty lines, but same scenario. Again, you get the picture. Came back, we have ten that vote or nine that vote for the short line, says so that's the longest. The one guy says, no, no, it's the other one. Here's the deal. After three or four tries, you know, runs of this. The guy that didn't know what was going on started voting for the short line. Even though he jolly well knew that that line was shorter, he became influenced and he he began to just I I don't know what, think to himself, Well maybe I'm not quite seeing things right. Maybe you know, maybe the, the you know maybe the difference is as much as I think or whatever. But seventy five percent after three or four rounds Um, that guy was voting wrong, even though he knew it was wrong. He was voting wrong just to fit in with everybody else. It just proves the point that we are made to want to be like everyone else. We just really are. All right, so the question is, how affected am I by people around me, other branches, or am I tapped into the line? All right, another reason we may be tempted to jump ship Because of the patience of God and his unwillingness for people to perish, there appears to be no immediate repercussion for not abiding. The wise man in Ecclesiastes said it this way. He says, because the sentence of an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. All right, reason number three. We are people that become easily distracted, discouraged, and disinterested in any cause. All right? We just really are. So a fire that is initially kindled, you know, we we decide to join Christ's kingdom and we're going to do what Christ wants us to do. But 20 years, 30 years, 40 years later, is that fire still there? Is it still stoked? Is it still bright? Are we still excited about it? Hopefully we are, but let's be honest enough to say that we, we could lose that initial flame. Demas did. We know that. We know Demas was a man that initially served the Lord well, apparently. But it said that he loved this present world and he lost that flame. Just a, another illustration. Uh, a few months ago, My brother said to me, he said, um, so I was talking to, and he named my brother-in-law, and he said, my brother-in-law asked me if you still graze cows up there. He said, well, sure, Dwight still does that. Why do you ask? He said, well, he doesn't talk about it anymore. Well, that was telling, because initially when I made that switch, it was a new, exciting thing to me, and so it it was something I talked about. Well, it's just old hat now, and so I don't talk about it anymore, see? So... I don't know, I think my flame is still there for that. But, you know, it's just one of those things. We, we lose interest in things. Jesus is saying, endure to the end. He said that at one point. He said, the person that endures to the end is the one that will be saved. And so I'd like to encourage us. Let's be excited. Barnabas instructed the Christians at Antioch, whenever he heard about these people in Antioch that had joined the, the church, it said he went there and he exhorted them that with purpose of heart they would cleave to the Lord. And I'd like to encourage us to do that. Let's let's continue with purpose of heart. All right, another directive here that I have for us as branches. We must bear fruit. It's very, very clear in verse 16. Um, verse 2 says, every, and, and notice it doesn't say most, every one that does not bear fruit, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I think this should be a solemn warning to us that we could be attached to the vine and not bearing fruit, and we better wake up if that's the case, because we will be taken away. It seems that there is a responsibility somewhere on the part of the branch to make sure that there is some fruit being yielded from that branch. It appears that the religious leaders of John the Baptist and Jesus' day had this issue of being plugged into what they thought was the the vine, but they yielded no fruit. And John had some scathing words for these people. He calls them a generation of vipers. And he says, "...bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance." And say not within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. These people were putting all their stock in the fact that they thought they were part of the right group. And John makes it quite clear that... They needed something a little bit more. The fruit just was not there. And as much as I am not one that likes to be a heritage basher, we do well to sit up and think about that. We really do. Think about this. A branch can look good. These people did. Evidently, these people that came to John did look good. But there was no fruit, and it made them worthless. I had a cow last year, a heifer actually, that I was going to calve in. And I commented several times to my wife how nice this cow looked. I couldn't wait to to freshen in this heifer. Beautiful thing. That cow disappointed me so badly. Came in, mastitis. I forget, she had a number of issues. But the fact of the matter was, it didn't matter how pretty she was, she was not going to yield milk. It wasn't going to happen. So did I keep that cow around because it was just a beautiful cow? I didn't. It went down the road. It yielded no fruit. You need fruit. That's what God's looking for. Let's take a lesson. Another thing we can learn about fruit bearing is there is always room for more fruit. It talks about in verse 2 that if a branch is bearing fruit, the husbandman is going to purge it so it will bring forth more fruit. It seems like the husbandman here is wanting his vineyard to yield to the max. This is nothing new. Um, farmers today still want their fields to produce to the max. Uh, we will go to great lengths to squeak out every bushel to the acre we possibly can or every ton of hay or whatever it will, it could be. We'll do that, and we'll do what it takes to get that. The idea of purging here... Um, Carries with it, we understand the the pruning process. But if you look up the word purge, it also has the word or the idea of cleansing, which makes the verse three fit in very nicely with this. Now you are clean, or now you are purged through the word that I have spoken unto you. I'm glad you're here this morning. The very fact that you're here indicates to me that you've come for a little pruning. Uh, You've opened yourself up for a little purging little cleansing through the word. And we have been in the process of doing that since about uh, almost two hours ago. We started doing that. We started uh, purging ourselves. So I applaud us for that. Um, Jesus in the parable, parable of the sower was very explicit about some things that need pruning. Um, he talks about people that get choked up with cares and riches and pleasure of, the, of life and bring no fruit to perfection. The Hebrew writer also brings out that pruning isn't exactly fun. He said, uh, no chastening for the present seems joyous, but grievous actually. But nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those that are exercised thereby. All right, another thing I want to point out here, The branch will not bear fruit of itself. Do you and I ever try to conjure up our own fruit? Is that ever a temptation? Do you know of anybody that's maybe tried to do that? Jesus talked about those people. He said, if you're a person that lends, but you lend because you want to be lent back to, that's not really the fruit I'm looking for. You lend and hope for nothing again. You give expecting nothing in return. You invite people for supper that won't invite you for supper. Now, that's fruit. He said, that's the fruit I'm looking for. Every other motive that we conjure up to somewhat bring forth some counterfeit fruit, perhaps, is nothing but a pitiful show of philanthropy. It really is. Let's make sure that we are bearing fruit that is worthy of being uh, tapped to the vine. It's very interesting that Jesus, again, I want to just talk about this thing. He says, without me, you can do nothing. Um, Sometimes in our endeavors, we say, well, you know, if we're going to run a mission, we're we're going to need personnel, maybe educated personnel. We're going to need some money to do this thing. Uh, We're going to need maybe this, that, or the other thing. But Jesus says, really, you need me. When he sent his missionaries out, he said, don't take anything with you. You just go spread the good news. Now, there's, there's a part of me, because I guess I'm an American, that says, well, you know, I got I to gotta, I, I gotta say that that's maybe a little over the top. It wouldn't be really wise to do something like that. But I want us to, to, to take a lesson. Let's make sure that as we're exercising ourselves for Christ... That we are not doing, we are not looking at all the peripherals and forgetting the focus, which is Jesus. All right, another thing on fruit bearing, and this is maybe a little aside and maybe not spoken to directly here, in this passage. But we kind of pick up on the analogy that we read of in the Old Testament, and that is where you you have this picture of this man sitting under his vine. All right. That man did not plant that vine just to go out and hang out in the shade. It's not what he put it there for. He, he put it there to, to collect some grapes and eventually have some wine. But in the meantime, he did hang out underneath his vine. He, he sat in its shade. So I'd like to make this point. While fruit bearing is the number one job of the vine, or the branch, I should say, there is the side benefit of the beauty of the aesthetics and the attraction of that particular branch. I'd like to just build on this a little bit. Think about, you know, we're again we're not people with vineyards, but, but think about this a little bit. We in this country we plant windbreaks. And we plant windbreaks to break the wind. It's, it's nice to have a windbreak to the north and even to the south around here and the west and some people do it on all four sides but it's nice because when it starts blowing like mad you don't feel it and we like that but there's another thing you talk to anybody that, that sells trees and they're going to talk you into planting a grove for a windbreak you know what they'll instantly say it'll add to the aesthetics of your property and it'll increase the value you know, they, they go beyond just the fact that it's going to break wind All right. no different here if if a property had a vineyard on it or if it had a um, yeah this 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 vine it added to the value it, and it was used for more than just fruit it was the aesthetics imagine a vine without branches or a tree without leaves or corn that was just a stalk all right it wouldn't be very beautiful would it So the question is, are we as branches giving beauty to the vine? And I'd like to pick up on a word in in Titus. It says, servants obey your masters that we may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Now the reason somebody adorns anything, we often, when we think of adorning, we often think of hanging stuff on ourselves, on our body to make our, you know, make a poor soul look a little better, all right? And we kind of frown on that a bit, but we, we understand adorning. Uh, think about our houses. Uh, what if we just had basic utility houses? No mottos, no, you know, just a light bulb into the, into the, you know, the, the ceiling, just utility. What makes a house attractive? It's when we adorn it a bit, right? We, we, we do some things to make it look homey and feel nice, Okay. I'm I'm just bringing this out that I think it's imperative that we, as the branches, bring beauty to that vine so that people are attracted to that vine. Jesus admonishes the crowd in Matthew 5 that we should let our light shine so that the people around us can see our good works and do what? Talk about the branch? Glorify the Father which is in heaven. Peter talks about the same thing. He says, uh, make sure you have an honest conversation, so that when the Gentiles see you, they will behold you and glorify God in the day of visitation. Along number three last summer, if you would have traveled number three, my road, you would have noticed that there was a cornfield on the east side of the road that was pretty unsightly. I never did figure out what happened in that particular cornfield, but there was great big waves of dead corn in that cornfield. Very unsightly. What percentage of that cornfield was dead? Very small percentage. It was, was it even a half of a percent? I don't know. Very small percentage. But do you know what I saw when I went past that cornfield? I saw that dead corn. I couldn't focus on the rest of the 200 acres, that look beautiful. I just saw that dead corn. My challenge to you is this. I don't think it's probably any different with a vineyard. And let's bring it back to our, our subject. How many dead branches does it take to make an ugly vineyard? How many unsightly people in a church does it take to make a church unattractive? Think about that. And then ask yourself the question, am I one of those nice looking branches or am I one of those Ugly branches. A couple things we can think about as far as making our, our, our branches attractive. Am I a pleasant person? Do people like to be around me? Can I draw people to the Father, to the husbandman, because they're attracted with my pleasantness? Psalm 43, the psalmist talks about God, who is the health of his countenance. I like that. Who's the health of your countenance? Who is the health of your countenance? Am I adorning the doctrine of God to the point that I can say to others, follow me? Paul did that. And we don't take him to, uh, to task for uh, being a little conceited. He just simply says, to the extent that I follow Christ, you follow me. You know why Paul could say that? Because he was adorning the doctrine. He really was. I ran a I'd like to read you one more verse here. It says, 2 Corinthians 2.15, it says, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. I'd like to read you an excerpt that I ran across here recently. Um this happened 116 years ago. but I think it brings out the, um, what I'm talking about here. Remember that doctrine is really the essential, all right? When we adorn the doctrine, we make the doctrine of Jesus so attractive. that people say, I want that doctrine. That's what I want. I ran across this, uh, this story of this funeral in my home area uh, around Hagerstown. Actually, it would have been the church that my grandparents would have attended, my mother when she was young. But it was a it was a funeral, and in this particular event, um, as happened some in those days, the husband went to the Reformed Church in Hagerstown, the wife went to Reif's and I Church right outside of Searfoss. When the wife died, the husband asked his minister to take part in that service. He was a Reformed man, but but he did. He took part in that service. And that reform minister wrote an excerpt in his diary describing what he saw that day. And I'd like to read you just a few sentences of what he had to say. So here, I'm here going to quote this. It says, the church holds a great many people, many good, strong faces among them. A hymn was sung, and then Mr. Bear made some remarks from the word, namely this, for this our light affliction. There was something very interesting about this good, sensible address of this farmer preacher. And as, as we came away, I was interested to see that the Mennonite brethren greeted each other and thus fulfilled the scriptural injunction to salute the brethren with a kiss of peace. It did me good to be among these Mennonite people. They have the things that I like, industry, thrift, simplicity, calmness, peace, and kindness. They are independent. They work with their hands. They owe no man anything and they try to live according to the simplicity of the gospel, doing their best to carry out the commands of Christ. I felt as if I would like to go and live that life a while. I don't say that. I hope you don't get puffed up over that. I say that simply to say this. These people, that's that's what I call adorning the doctrine. He mentioned nothing doctrinal here. But what he saw was the aesthetics. He saw the beauty of what that doctrine did for those people. So I'd just like to encourage us in that. Lastly, I'd just like to uh, focus yet another directive for us as branches. The branch and its produce and benefits belong exclusively to the husbandman. Any farmer... Through the ages, I'm sure, always wanted his fields to produce to the max. But in verse 8, it says, Herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. The glory went to the father. When a farmer grows a good crop, the glory doesn't go to the field. The glory goes to the farmer, does it not? Think about Job. Job was God's field. But who did Job honor? It was God. When it was all said and done, who got the glory? It was it was God. Job was one of those one of those fields of God that God was not ashamed to go out and stake a little sign beside it and says, hey, you know, this is decaled, whatever it is. You know? We see these signs in late summer. That's essentially what God did with Job. So the lesson is let's honor our husbandmen with our fruit. The New Testament Christians were always sh- um, very um, sure to do this. If you remember with me, Paul and Barnabas at Lystra, when the people were going to heal, or I'm sorry, worship them for healing the lame man, uh, they said, Don't do that. We're people just like you. Don't do that. When Cornelius tried to worship Peter, again, Peter's like, Don't do that. You worship God. Another thing. It is completely up to the farmer what measure he wants to take to make that branch bear, and not the business of other branches. It says in verse 2 that he purges the branches so they bring forth more fruit. But it does not tell us where the starting point of that was. How much fruit was that branch bearing to start with? I don't know the answer. But the point is, it seems like there's constant purging, so the fruit increases. No matter if you feel you're already maxed out, I'm pretty sure there's probably room for more fruit. And so allow the the Father to purge us so that we can bear more. Peter had a little struggle with this. If you remember his conversation with Jesus at one point, uh, Jesus was telling him that, um, you know, there's going to be a time come whenever people are going to do to you things that... it's kind of against your will. He says, when you get old, they're going to stretch out your hands. Another will gird thee and carry thou where thou wouldest not. And it says this, I don't know what Peter's reaction was, but we do know what he said. He said, he turned around and he looked at another disciple and he said, hey, what about this man? Jesus said, that's none of your business, Peter. What I do with him is absolutely none of your business. He said, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Let's take the lesson. Don't worry about what the branch beside you is yielding. You just submit to the purging of the Father. Let him purge you, and you continue to bring forth more fruit. All right, another observation. The fruit produced should benefit the husbandman as far into the future as he jolly well chooses. In verse 16, It says, "Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Now that word remain means to continue, to last, to stick around for a while. If you remember with me, the biggest part of the grape harvest was pressed into wine and stored for later use or dried for raisins. There wasn't a lot of it was eaten fresh because you couldn't possibly eat that many grapes fresh. Right now at my house, um, I, make, I put up my forage mostly as baleage. And right now I'm feeding baleage that's two years old. I've long forgotten about harvesting that baleage. Um, it's, it's kind of a distant memory. But I am, I am using that baleage two years later to feed my cows. And that's what I decided I wanted to do. And that's what I'm doing. That fruit from that field still remains. It continues. Now, it would eventually go bad, I will admit, but, you know, it's lasting. It's sticking around. How about our fruit? Our fruit should likewise, I think, remain for generations following us to reflect on and to enjoy and to benefit from. Think about Abel. The Hebrew writer said about Abel, he said he offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, and God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaks. So many generations later, we're still learning from Abel's fruit. We are. His fruit has remained. Think about Mary and her spikenard. Wherever the gospel is preached, we talk about that lady. Her fruit remains. Whenever Dorcas passed away, the fruit, her clothes, that's what they were showing Peter that day. So my question is, will people a generation from now be able to reflect on my fruit that I have borne through being attached to that vine and being purged by that husbandman and still benefit from that fruit? Paul writes to Titus and he says, If all things... Showing yourself a pattern of good works. Now a pattern is something that you keep around and you cut cloth from it and you cut cloth from it and you do it again and again. You could do it for a generation and it still makes the same dress or whatever you're making. So the analogy is this. Can people use me as a pattern of good works? Can they do that? Can they look at me and say, I want to I I go by that pattern. I think I want to follow that person because it appears to me that he's following Christ. It appears like he has fruit that remains. And lastly, the husbandman is quite long-suffering and patient with his vineyard. You know, some things don't come quickly, and growing grapes was one of those things. James picks up on this in his book, and he says, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and latter rain. God does not give up easily. So my challenge for us in that point is, isn't it a shame to allow the husbandman to work with his vineyard and work on that branch and he's looking forward to fruit and the fruit is not yielded? What a shame. If God has invested so much into our lives, should we not invest back? Is that the right term? Or should we not give him what he deserves? I think surely we should. So a couple questions here for you to think about as we close this. Are you plugged into the vine today? Are you? As you have analyzed this, can you say to yourself, does your spirit bear testimony with God's spirit that you are plugged into the vine? Are you? Have you made that choice to join the kingdom? Are you a branch that is bearing abundant fruit, and not only abundant fruit, but fruit that will remain? It'll stick around, it'll last, and it'll benefit future generations. Is it exuding a pleasant aesthetic that the wayfaring man finds attractive? And says, you know, I'd like to sit underneath that vine for a while. And lastly, are you submitted to the husband? Are you satisfied with his pruning? How's that working out for you? If you can answer yes to those questions, continue. If the answer is something other than that, figure it out. And God will help you to do that.